Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans. Baseball things considered. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Troy Tulowitzki is in the American League East. Be afraid. Well, just be afraid for, let's call it, three weeks until his hip goes out <laughs> on that artificial turf. A little later on in the show, we have a very exciting guest. Yes, indeed we do. Ben Adams wrote a piece for Slate recently about the demise of the MLB fan cave, which I think a lot of people viewed as indicative of a failure in Major League Baseball's media strategy on some level. But Ben argues quite compellingly, I would say, that the actual state of affairs with regard to MLB's media strategy is much more complicated than that, and the picture may in fact be much rosier. So we will talk to him about that and his questionable decision to be a Red Sox fan in 2015 slash at all. <laughs> but first, let's really get down to brass tacks here on the whole Orioles trade situation. Um, in all probability, Baltimoreans, by the time you hear this episode, uh, Dan Duquette will have woken from his season-long slumber and wheeled and dealed, making this entire discussion obsolete. But from where we sit right now, on the evening of Wednesday, July 29th, it is currently 10.06 p.m., and the Baltimore Orioles are in the midst of a heady five-game winning streak. That uh, leaves us really just unsure about whether this is a good team or a bad team, and whether we are one step away from uh, complete chaos and going to be sellers, or one step away from making the big trade and becoming becoming a competitor for the 2015 World Series. Sam, in your mind, are we buyers or sellers? My position on that changes by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm only going to be able to give you my perspective on that as of, it is now 10.07 p.m. <laughs> okay. Uh, so in the 10 o'clock hour. <laughs> I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that what really goes on is that I have delusions about the kind of person that I am. Mm. And when I have delusions wow. <laughs> about the kind of person that I am, the kind of person that I think I might be is someone who's very rational and very practical. Mm -hmm. And somebody who looks at the massive number of impending free agents that we have thinks that we're already seven and a half games behind the Yankees, that it's probably going to be an out-and-out -out dogfight for the wild card in the American League this year, given the apparent strength of the Twins, I still don't understand why that balloon hasn't popped yet. But it doesn't seem to be popping. And the Astros or the Angels, whichever that ends up being out there in the American League West, is our team, which has been so fluky and so streaky, failing a trade, really built to take on those teams against whom we haven't played well this year and who we would have to beat in a one-game playoff for a shot at the wild card. And even if we do make that giant trade, isn't that way, way, way too much pressure to put on a Justin Upton or a James Shields or a Jay Bruce or another person whose first name starts with Jay, <laughs> free agent, <laughs> that we bring in? It, it, it starts to seem very overwhelming 
And instead, I end up thinking, is there a point barring the aftermath of the 2013 season where we're going to be able to get more value for Chris Davis than right now? I don't think there is. Is there a point where we're going to be able to get more value for Wei-Yin Chen than there is right now? I don't think there is. And it's unlikely that we're going to commit to huge free agent contracts for those guys, for Bud Norris, for any of the people who we stand to lose this offseason. So why not build the team for long-term strength so that we know that over the remainder of Adam Jones's contract, so that we know that for the remainder of Buck Showalter's guaranteed tenure, we're likely to keep contending? And why not spend the money on extending Manny Machado for the foreseeable future than slicing and dicing every dollar to try to keep Matt Wieters plus whoever. The reality of the situation, though, is that I am not that rational, practical person. <laughs> I am somebody who modulates my opinion about life on a weekly basis as determined by how well or poorly the Orioles are doing. It plays a huge role in my emotional well-being. I've wanted that to go away for 33 years, and it's never gone away. It's always going to be here. So, of course, I want the team to make a huge trade, bring in Justin Upton and James Shields, take on the James Shields contract, assume, even though it will never happen, that we will pay market value for Justin Upton to stay in Baltimore. Even though there's no way he'll be worth the length of that contract, it's going to be Shinsu Chu 2.0. Say that five times fast. Nailed it! And might I add, Shinsu Chu 2.0 without the on-base percentage. <laughs> um, but yes, let's Just do it. Just look at Melvin, man. Just what? look at Melvin. Well, we're going to have to take on Melvin. <laughs> I comes, think it comes with the package in order to, I mean, it, it has been clearly established. The Upton brothers do not like playing in different uniforms. That's fair. So I cannot sit here with a straight face and tell you that I want the Orioles to blow up the bridge just because we are on the bubble at midseason. However, I do think that on paper, the case for selling is much stronger than the case for buying. All right. What do you think, Smith? All right. Um, well, the case for, for selling is much, much clearer than the case for buying. Um, but isn't that always true? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that right now, at this moment, we are uh, blinded by the fact that the Orioles have won five games in a row. The reality is this team has not beaten good teams yet this year. And the other reality is the offense has not gelled. And I don't think that one bat changes that. We've seen enough from the Giants and the Royals and even the 2012 Orioles to know when a team has it and when a team doesn't. And I don't think this team has it. You can't really platoon two outfielder positions and an infield position constantly and expect to get anywhere at, at a major league baseball level. And I wouldn't I mean, even add I wouldn't even add two infield positions yeah, because we don't seem base. to have a confirmed first baseman. Right. Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette have gotten a little bit too enamored of their own shenanigans and that they continue to think that they can pull a, a Paredes out of thin air and and make it happen. And I think that that can work over 162 games, but it won't work in the playoffs. And that we're going to get absolutely destroyed by a competent team like the Royals who just picked up Cueto and are 
honest to God, terrifying now. And Ben Zobrist, excuse me, let's not... And Ben uh, Zobrist, let's, let's not, not bury the lead. The, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think that this team is absolutely sellers. But I actually would prefer that. Um, because I think that if you look at this team's contributions right now, the people who are playing the best, the people who are the most interesting, are not the people we would be selling. I don't think that Chen and Davis are particularly major contributors to the Orioles' success right now. I think people get enamored of Chris Davis's ability to hit the ball very far, but I would prefer my first baseman and or my <laughs> right fielder, where is he playing now, to repeatedly get on base and move runners and do things that contributed to victories instead of hitting a, Joey a home Votto run. Man, eh? Yeah. <laughs> instead of hitting one home run when the team was down three to one in the ninth inning with two outs, which Chris Davis has done like six times this year, and then for us to lose three to two. So what I'd like to do, ship the big things out of town, get some young talent, and then have them go on a miraculous playoff run anyway as the underdogs when the team gels around the leadership of a few guys and we don't have so many people competing for airtime in Baltimore. I'm choosing selling but also winning, which I realize, comparatively speaking, is not 100% accurate. <laughs> the 100% accuracy, as all of our <laughs> listeners will know, has never been a big value of ours. Another thing to consider here is, as has been frequently pointed out in the press, the Orioles do not exactly have a rich farm system from which to deal for one of these giant trades. And not only would dealing some of these impending free agents help restock the farm system, but if we keep some of them and then make them qualifying offers, only to have them inevitably depart via free agency, those are compensatory draft picks that we get as well. I think also that my conception of selling is very much tied up in the Eric Bedard for Chris Tillman and Adam Jones deal. And I realize that most times things don't go quite that well. <laughs> <laughs> but that deal is sort of like my conception of what happens when we sell. So if we could do that, if we could trade Chris Davis for a future number two and also a perennial all-star, let's go ahead and do that. You know, there is one other angle here that I think we should talk about, which is for years and years and years, there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that the Orioles behave like a small market team, even though they are actually a relatively large market team with the financial resources to sign and maintain really big name players. They just don't do it, mm -hmm. whether it's because they have been burned in the past by the Albert Bells of the world, uh, the Miguel Tejadas of the world, or whether it's because Peter Angelos is just a cheap bastard. However, it's been a long time since that perception has really had to be put to the test. Because between 1998 and 2011, the team was so bad that signing one really big name free agent or making some giant trade wasn't going to be enough to push things over the edge. That may be the position that we're in right now. This team, keeping in mind what you just said, which I think is probably true, it is possible that this team is one Justin Upton and James Shields away from being a really significant player for the American League wildcard. And if the only reason to not trade for Justin Upton is the fact that we'd have to give up a lot to get him and he would probably leave in free agency. Maybe it's time to face the reckoning of if you make the Justin Upton trade and then you go ahead and shell out the money to keep Justin Upton, 
the way the Cardinals did when they traded for Matt Holliday and then signed him to a long-term contract extension, maybe it's time for us to have that debate again. I think that our moment to do that was Andrew Miller. Um, I think that we traded a very good young prospect to get Andrew Miller for a stretch run. And I was on the record then for saying it was a very good idea. And I still I still hold to that. It was it was the right move were we to not run into the buzzsaw that was the gifted Kansas City Royals with the horseshoe up their ass that year. I think that that was a World Series caliber team. I don't have that feeling this year. I don't have the same sense of like where we're one step away from the stretch run. And I think that that demonstrated to me that if there was ever a player who you'd want to like really push hard to keep around, it was Andrew Miller. And it doesn't seem to me like the Orioles made much of an effort at all to keep him to keep him in Baltimore. I guess the the note to end on here is, as we have noted so many times on this show, if there's one thing Dan Duquette doesn't do, it's stand pat. He did just make an incredible deal to bring Troy Tulowitzki to Toronto. <laughs> well, what do they say? Dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Another thing Dan Duquette does is lay in the cut until the last possible moment. Yes. That's how we got Nelson Cruz. It's how we got Ubaldo Jimenez. It's how we're going to get whoever we get at the deadline this year. Or or uh, give up whoever we're going to give up. <laughs> well, we'll get 19-year-olds back in return whose names we've never heard before. We just don't know who they are yet. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well... <laughs> Either way, uh, Sam, it's going to be exciting to see whether Dan is on the the bear or the bull side of the Jim Cramer show and whether he ends up with the bye, 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 bye. (laughs) (laughs) What's the terrible noise that he has? Like the cell noise? I I try to watch Mad Money as rarely as possible. (laughs) That's fair. So I can't answer your question. All right. Well, forget this. Let's talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. Uh, Ben Adams is a writer and nonfiction book editor here in New York City, and he has a really interesting article up on Slate.com that came out on July 12th about the dearly departed, or maybe not so dearly departed, MLB Fan Cave. He's coming up right after the break. So, Ben Adams, welcome to Baltimoreans. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. So, full disclosure here, I was a finalist for the MLB Fan Cave in, before the 2013 season. And even as somebody who went through almost all of the process, I did the initial submission, I did the social media kerfuffle where you had to try to get people to watch your video... <laughs> I went to a very strange weekend of vaguely reality show type competitions in Arizona and ultimately was not selected for the fan cave. But despite going through all of that, I still don't really know what the fan cave was. So (laughs) in your opinion, what the hell was the MLB fan cave? (laughs) Well, you know, in its original board meeting incarnation, I think it was a kind of zany idea that somebody had that they thought maybe this is just crazy enough to work. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when doing the research for my article, I sort of discovered some things that I think got buried because what the fan cave was had changed a couple of different times during its history as 
as a thing. It seems to me that they had initially planned for this to be in a kind of soundstage. You know, I, I advisedly included the comparison to Big Brother. That was from some article I found from 2009 <laughs> right. or whatever it had been, but that was their initial plan was we could film this and it would be these lives that, you know, they ate and drank baseball for six months. And then somebody said as an afterthought, well, why don't we, instead of doing it in a soundstage, why don't we put it right in the heart of New York City and make it windowed and people can peer in the glass like they do on the on the Today Show. <laughs> or like a zoo. <laughs> and I think that ended up creating a lot of confusion because it took it to some other new direction that it hadn't been before. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was really interesting about going through the selection process was that all of the circumstances of the audition process and competition weekend in Arizona felt and smelled and tasted like auditions for a reality show. But nobody would mm -hmm. say reality show. And when you would ask the MLB executives who were there point blank, what is the fan cave? They would say, it's an opportunity to watch every Major League Baseball game of the 2013 season. To which mm -hmm. myself and other folks there said, I'm going to do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been selling you something. Uh, uh, if I were peddling the fan cave, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an opportunity to be observed by by millions of people across the country. I think it's the more appealing <laughs> part is... you go insane. <laughs> yeah, right. The more appealing part is you live baseball. From my perspective, having not, uh, not in any way auditioned for it, the MLB fan cave to me has always felt like one of those aggressively corporate attempts to be cool. And it had all of the sort of moving pieces of that. It had the sort of like the upvotes and the share your videos and the get me some of the social media-ness that a McDonald's campaign has or the like the hijacked Twitter feeds about ask your favorite politician some question, which always go terribly and hilariously wrong. Do you think that the fan cave no longer exists because it couldn't find a good footing? Or do you think the fan cave no longer exists because the people at MLB think that they have some other better direction to go? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, the organization that created the MLB fan cave is called MLB Advanced Media. And I think they are incredibly sophisticated. Yeah. They were first on streaming video. They were two years before YouTube streaming all these games. Mm -hmm. They were the first wow. one to create over-the-top, you know, programming, which is, you know, now takes the form of HBO Go and all of those, you know, Hulu Plus. And in fact, the software that they created is used by HBO and it's used by the NHL and it's used by, you know, more media companies than, than I can think of off the top of my head because they created the gold standard and there was no reason to innovate it in-house for any of these other companies. And, you know, I mean, they're still ahead. They've got a partnership with Snapchat that they're, that they're lining up and they're ahead of every company I can think of on, on that count. I mean, just really, they've shown a lot of vision for what's coming next. Do you think there's a component to this where they maybe didn't realize how ahead of the game they already were? Because as I thought back on the various promotions that have gone on in the fan cave over the last few years, they were taking a very old media approach to what was in theory a very new media project. They had this live TV show that they hoped people would watch live on MTV2, and they had concerts on a soundstage there that didn't really seem to have any particular 
connection to baseball, but were just famous people doing things adjacent to baseball. (laughs) It seems like a part of their realization was we may have been doing a better job than we realized we were at engaging millennials or 18 to 34s or, you know, whatever the correct industry term for that is than we realized we were. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's a two-part answer to that. One is that I think you're, I think you're dead on. This this was an effort to court millennials or, you know, as that Chrome extension would call them, snake people. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I work in media full time. And, you know, this is a question that we all have. Sure. Um, The buying power of the baby boomers has been the deciding factor in how you go about the media business for decades. And it still actually is. But Everyone can see the change coming, and you're trying to get in early with a crowd that's going to have the most buying power in another 10 or 15 years. Hmm. And this particular group has shown itself to be defiant towards advertising, disrupting and refusing the old ways, and it puts every media company in an existential crisis. If baseball was in the midst of its crisis, the fan cave was the red Ferrari in the driveway. Um, (laughs) I was going to call it the Google Glass of an otherwise uh, (laughs) successful Google franchise. And I think the decisions they've made since then have been much more savvy and reflect uh, confidence in the content of their game. Time will tell whether that's just good PR or whether indeed the engagement they have for millennials now will translate long-term into the kinds of monetized subscriptions that everybody is seeking. But, you know, I would venture that no media company has a confidence strategy for, for engaging millennials, except maybe a few new websites. Well, let's stick with that idea for just a second, because one of the other things that you point out in the piece is that part of what MLB Advanced Media is starting to figure out, and maybe shutting down the fan cave was part of this realization, is that the way that media companies have been measuring engagement is perhaps out of date by the measurement of how much time millennials are spending sitting down and watching an entire baseball game start to finish while it's live. While that number may be alarmingly low, that doesn't mean that their engagement with baseball is low. Quite the contrary. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And I think uh, the point I would make is, is who's doing the measuring. You know, if, you, if you're going to go look up who's paying attention to baseball, what's the first thing you think to do? I think to go look at TV ratings. And they are. They're going to kill them, TV ratings, compared to some of the most successful sports, at a national level at least. But that's only part of the story. Yeah. And uh, th- th- by the way, I would add one other thing, and that is that there are all these regional networks that are extremely successful, and it's really where all of the money in baseball is coming from right now, are these massive team-owned TV contracts. And you watch your home team, and everybody is making money. But that doesn't translate to tuning into Fox on Saturday or ESPN on Sunday night, and so it looks like baseball is struggling in the ratings. What's really happening, I think, is a fracturing of the market as opposed to a crashing of it. And I think the other thing that you pulled out, I mean, I have mentioned right now, but also pulled out very well in the, in the article, was how many touches someone like me gets with baseball that have nothing to do with sitting down and watching a game at all. And right before we called you up, Sam and I were talking about the fact that I know the name of a gentleman named Trevor Story, who is a hot 
prospect for the Colorado Rockies. I don't follow the Rockies. I have very little interest in the National League at all. But because of our collective fantasy baseball league and because of that method of engaging with baseball, I'm checking in not only on the Orioles scores and watching Orioles highlights, but I'm also checking in on 12 other teams. I am dipping into those regional networks. I'm getting little bits of stuff. And baseball really is a sport that is designed for that. Every game, Mm -hmm. every week, you always have something to check on your smartphone. It's always something there for the entire season and then actually most of the offseason. So I think that the contact points are just so much higher than a 16-game NFL season. The fantasy sports universe is changing everything, and it's heading more and more towards just plain old gambling. And um, (laughs) the introduction of daily fantasy has been... Sure sounds like betting on games. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, baseball really lends itself to quantifying, right? I mean, that's, uh-huh. that's what Moneyball was about, and it launched a million other books just like it and articles, and, you know, I mean, the, the whole Internet owes its existence to saver metrics in some ways. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, Beergraphs.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and, and Daily Fantasy. So I went to the Sloan Sports Conference, which is a, um, an organization of, commissioners and league officials and business people who work in sports that meets every year. It's hosted by MIT. And Rob Manfred was there. Adam Silver was there. Nate Silver was there. Uh, <laughs> all kinds of well-known um, commentators, statisticians, and money people. And, you know, you could feel the energy in the room around daily fantasy because they had suddenly put a dollar amount on just how much money the major sports had on the table if they could find a way to get through the legal barriers and make gambling a reality. And it is a huge amount of money. All the leagues are looking at this as a major opportunity, and they're right, it is one. It's not the form of consuming baseball that I personally would hope would become ascendant, but it's a long way from baseball is dying, let's put it that way. Do you see a future of baseball which is just churning out a random number generator series of numbers for a massive <laughs> set of online systems to a giant chew twenty-sided up. die. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it almost is that already. It's certainly, I'm a Red Sox <laughs> fan. It certainly feels like that at times when you look at the scores. Um, but uh, I think baseball is a game that nerds love. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's not hard to understand why. And uh, one thing I know about millennials is they they know nerds. Yeah, <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I have a nightmare scenario that I sometimes play out in my mind that I want to run by you. And just to stay with this idea of the possible numeric dystopia that we may be heading towards. <laughs> um, and it's this. I think of the reasons I love baseball And what I think of are mostly not quantifiable things. They are the sound of Gary Thorne's voice calling a game while I'm making spaghetti. They are the experience of listening to a game on a long car trip and having the companionship of the broadcaster's voices. The fact that through the fine work of the good people at MLB Advanced Media, I can watch an Orioles game on tape delay at 11 o'clock at night after a very long day, having studiously avoided social media for the hours between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. so that I don't know what happened and I can watch it as new. And that is a source of great comfort for me. And as I get older and rely on 
what I love about baseball more and more as a, as a source of, of solace against all the craziness, I feel like those things are being devalued as this constant engagement, multiple touchpoint universe that we've been discussing becomes more prevalent. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, am I becoming one of the fuddy-duddies? Do I love... <laughs> Do I love baseball for the wrong reasons, and I and I just haven't realized it yet? How how should I feel? <laughs> You're welcome to feel however you like. Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, please tell me. I need help. <laughs> uh, but but uh, uh, are you becoming a fuddy duddy? That is not a word I typically use in a sentence. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, sure, definitely. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, had, I had a feeling. But I, I don't know that it matters. I mean, I, it seems to me we're a long way from actually playing baseball in a way where they they have an inning and then everybody goes on Instagram for a while and then they have another inning. That's really mm-hmm. just Pablo Sandoval's department right now. <laughs> and and um, He's certainly not doing uh, much on the field. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, no, he's not. So they're still going to have the games and they're still going to broadcast the games. My version of, of Gary Thorne is Don Orsillo and, and Jerry Remy, who I think are the best in the business, bar none. Yeah. And welcoming them into my living room on a weeknight is one of one of the one of the great pleasures of sports, um, and and I am very glad that I have MLB TV so I can do that while living in New York City. But I, I don't see that going anywhere. I mean, it's you still have to play the games, and Lord knows they're not going to just live stream it with with nobody calling it. You may be right. You know, the the best innovations may be in you know how the game is is portrayed on Snapchat, they're still going to have to have the stadiums and the players, and someone's going to point a camera at it. So I, I yeah. think you're in the clear. Well, and, and you know, that's just making me think of the Orioles, obviously, with great notoriety this year, played a game with no fans in the stadium, mm-hmm. where it was just cameras pointed at the players and broadcasters talking, and it was very <laughs> eerie and silent. And I think we agreed as a country... For any number of reasons, this is not what America is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what? One sort of last question for you in comparing Major League Baseball to the other major sports. Major League Baseball has, as you said, sort of sketched itself out as a leader in so many ways in in how fans can absorb content of a game. And we've just talked about how baseball lends itself very much to this moment, and soccer, for example, really doesn't. Like it's watching or hearing about a soccer game afterwards or watching it over a stat tracker is infuriating and leaves, you know, it leaves you sort of feeling like it's better to not even do it at all. But do you think that Major League Baseball has gone too far down the the line of trying to control all of their product? You don't see highlights mashed up on YouTube. You don't see fans getting to do that sort of remixing piece that to continue to talk about stereotypes that millennials seem to really enjoy getting into. And you do see the NBA embracing that. So you do see sort of like all of Sean Kemp's best slams on YouTube regularly. You do see highlight football catches. Is MLB, um, in your opinion, on the right track here in trying to control all these streams of media, or are they going to lose that fight? That's a pretty hard question. It seems to me that's been something that's been on Rob Manfred's mind this year, yeah. specifically as it relates to live streaming the games more so than chopping off the highlights. You get the feeling from their public statements, I have no reporterly knowledge about this other than what I've just read on the internet, that they are moving towards 
liberating the live streams so that anyone can watch them from their smartphone regardless of you know blackout territories and all that kind of stuff it's an existential thing for cable companies and lord knows there are a few of those Um, i I can't believe they've hung on this long i mean i can (laughs) well you know what's funny i'm taking this in a slightly different direction but one of the points that the guys at mlb advanced media made to me was you talk about trying to capture millennials but the millennial age group is large enough and is changing enough that you really don't have a constant set of characteristics. I was born in, in 81, okay, so I think that I qualify as a millennial. I'm just at the oldest possible age you can be. When MLB first started live streaming their games, I was a broke college kid. And, you know, now now I am closer to my son being a broke college kid. Uh, so... <laughs> I have a lot more buying power, and I'm willing to shell out for cable right now. So it's not obvious that the everything free model is is really going to stick when millennials get to the age where they have disposable income. But I do think it will be a game changer, of course, for cable companies when they lose sort of exclusive rights to, to live sporting events. And I'm sure that uh, MLB would love to, to own that. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking recently, I cut the cable cord, you know, a couple years ago at this point, and periodically I try to figure out if I feel like I'm missing anything. And the only two things I can ever come up with are election coverage and Yankees games when the Orioles are in New York. <laughs> the 18 <because laughs> times a year when the Orioles play the Yankees. There are 18 <laughs> terrible nights a year. Uh, well, uh, 19 in an election year. Um, <laughs> Once that barrier falls, then it's really just uh, Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush I'll have, to, I'll have to worry about. I will be very interested to see where this all winds up 10, 15, 20 years from now when, when the sort of wars have been fought and, and we'll see who's still standing. I wouldn't be surprised if cutting the cord ends up looking a lot like owning cable used to look. Sure. And one of the things I was thinking when you mentioned that MLB would like to own this entire distribution model is the first thing that they will do as a savvy business once they own the distribution model is look for ways of upselling you. At first, everybody gets to stream all their baseball games for free, but then, you know, maybe you want the ability to listen to the radio broadcast with the visuals that you're looking at. Maybe that'll cost you a little bit of money. Maybe the GoPro on Matt Weider's helmet will cost you a little bit of money. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think that's likely. It's the way it's gone with every single other thing, so (laughs) I think we can expect it. (laughs) All right, well, the article we have been discussing is called What Happened to the MLB's Wacky Fan Cave? Uh, It was posted on Slate on July 12th. Ben Adams, thank you so much for joining Baltimoreans today, man. It's been fun to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Tons and tons and tons of speculation here on episode 127 of Baltimoreans. We did a lot of speculating. A lot of speculating. I appreciated that Ben was willing to jump into the speculation pool with us and doggy paddle around. Well, he was 
swimming uh, a very competent, I think, breaststroke, whereas <laughs> we were you and I were a boot. <laughs> yeah, having trouble staying above water. Episode 127 is uh, a shockingly large number that I never thought we would get to based on the very thin premise that we started this podcast with. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time you hear this, None of it's going to make any sense or matter with the exception of the insights of Ben Adams. Oh, oh, you know what else 127 is? 127 is the number of times that I have changed my opinion about whether this team should be a buyer or a seller since we started this program. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, the music on the show today. Our theme song written and performed by Marshall York. Working for another song by the band Town Hall, heard in between sections. The song Birdland by the band Weather Report, also heard between segments and right here on the outro. As usual, it's the Black Crows with kicking my heart around. Alan Smith has a pensive look on his face. It's that look that you only see when someone is trying to come up with a solid Henry Arudia pun. I've got one. I'm just worried we've used it. <laughs> hit, hit me with it. Hit me with it. What would you call Henry Arudia if he was starring in a animated feature about a mouse who cooks? No, we have not done mouse who cooks or rat who cooks. Rat who cooks. We have not done Henry Ratatouille. No, Henry Ratatatouille. No, Ratatat. That's the German that's the, uh, the guitar German funk, funk ensemble. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you guys see Rata- where we're going. <laughs> Henry Ratatouille Yui. Rat- <laughs> good night, folks. Good and night. Good luck. Goodbye, home run. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com.